Hello and welcome to Work in Progress, a show where we get people to explain the work they do so that we can understand a little bit more the complexity of the world we live in. My name is Mei Yi and I am your host. This episode, I speak to Pramesh Chandran, who is very well known for being one of the co-founders of Malaysia Kini, the first internet-based independent news portal in Malaysia. I thought our conversation was going to be about mobility because he co-founded another company, Asia Mobility, and of course also about journalism. And we did spend some time talking about those, but after talking to him, I see the theme that emerges, and it's that Pram seems dead set on tackling one intractable problem after another. With Malaysia Kini, it was to address the lack of independent news, and then now he's working to develop the transport ecosystem using data. And it seems his next big undertaking is housing, good, affordable housing for those who need it the most. And when we think about housing and transport, we may think that these are best addressed by government or policymakers, but by taking into account realities on the ground, Prime believes market-based solutions would instead push us forward. So it was a really enlightening conversation, and I love how he wrapped up about the society we want to see. Here's our show. Prem, welcome to the show. So when you envision seamless or integrated mobility for a Southeast Asian city like, let's say, KL, what do you envision and what is missing in uh, reality versus your vision today? For me, I see mobility as an, as an ecosystem, right? Different types of mobility linking together. Previously, we always talk about cars. It takes you from you know, your home or your point A to point B in, in a car. But increasingly, as our cities get more congested and, and also more um, sprawling, we believe that we we're going to move towards a mobility ecosystem. So you may drive to, to a train station and hop on a train and then take a bus you know, or some other means of transport. Making a journey over a single vehicle may become less and less common. And also, we hope that it also becomes more and more expensive so that we help people move away from private cars and burning fossil fuels towards more collective modes of transport. If you look at big cities today like New York or Tokyo or, or, or London, more and more people are on public transport uh, rather than on private transport. Klang Valley is already hitting 10 million. Jakarta is 20 million. Most of our cities are well past the point of 10 million people so that we can make more and more investments in public transport. And that requires uh, a unique collaboration among these transport methods, right? That's what we mean by a mobility ecosystem. So somebody might offer a neighborhood shuttle that connects you to a train, and then the train may get you to point A, after which you may have to walk or take a grab or something else, right? So from the user's point of view, we want to get from A to B. So that's why we want to build a system where we can integrate different types of transport systems so to make you give you the choice and the options and the best ways to get from A to B wherever you want to go. What makes you want to work on mobility? I've always had a fascination for transport. I used to take the minibus a lot, you know, when I was a kid. I grew up in Kuala Lumpur, in, in PJ, actually. In those days, you know, our parents gave us much more independence. And essentially, you could go anywhere that you could get a bus to. And the minibus, you know, you pay 50 cents in those days. You know, it was a pretty pretty decent way of going. You probably wait about 10, 15 minutes, you know, and the bus will come. If it's crowded, I don't know whether you, you grew up in PJ, but if you hit the minibus and it's crowded, the, the bus conductor will say, blakam, 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 and push everybody more and more to the back so they could yeah. fit in an extra person, right? And we would all cramp in like sardines. But in a way, we would get along. We'd all move a bit and make space for the extra person because we know that, you know, if we were that extra person out there, we wouldn't want to wait for the next bus. We want to, you know, accommodate that person, right? And there's no COVID so, then. And there's no COVID, right? So we all squeeze into the, into the same bus. 
And, and you know, so I was really interested in saying, hey, we could move around efficiently. That really was a very liberating experience, especially for those of us who don't drive, you know, young people, etc. And I encountered that again in, in London in 2016. I went with my family uh, and my kids to London because my wife was doing her master's. And my kids, you know, using the London transport system, suddenly became very independent. They were taking the tube, they were taking buses, uh, and kids uh, travel for free on, on London buses. Uh, you know, they were exploring this huge city, which had so much to offer without depending on their parents, right? And they changed. They became much more independent. And I, it made me think back to my day as a kid and, and the ability to travel using the bus, the bus mini. And, you know, I think that uh, a good mobility system is really like the lifeblood of a city. It makes the city move. It comes alive. People move about, will have fun instead of this gridlock stuck behind a car, traffic jams, getting really angry and irritated. We look at cities by often by buildings. You know, we look at the Twin Towers. We look at the Empire State Building. It's always about the buildings and the architecture. But really, if you think about what makes a city work, it's not just the buildings and the place making the, the places to go to. It's how you get around the city. You know, your walking experience, whether you stop for a tetare, whether you stop for a chendol, you have a nice coffee corner here and there. That ex- the rivers, that really makes the city come alive. You know, and I've walked a lot of the cities and really that walking experience in some of the big cities, it really makes you enjoy the city much more than, you know, sitting in a car driving through a city. I, I agree. I mean, I, I lived in Penang my whole life and there are a lot of places that I walk. So I used to walk to school even. And then after that, I spent like 10 over years in Singapore, which of, of course we know they have really nice pedestrian pathways and so on. So when I started doing some work in KL, it always boggles the mind that I see this building in front of me and it's so short, right? But if I want to get there, suddenly there's a highway that is cutting the pedestrian walkway and I couldn't get there without making a huge turn. Uh, so I, I totally see where you're going there. Yeah. yeah, so I think that we can re-engineer our, our cities. And very interestingly, the government just launched the Low Carbon City Initiative. So moving all our cities to a low carbon state. And if, in fact, you know, this... You know, lowering our carbon emissions, especially in cities, is, is a major, it's a global issue. We're in a climate crisis. Uh, for me, it's no longer an option that we think about low-carbon cities. These are very, very major moves that we have to make. And I think that if uh, our generation does not do it, the next generation will not forgive us for the world mm. that we leave them with. Yeah, public transportation is often like a really important system to get right for wider society to function well, right? I'm curious about your thought process around this problem because it seems to me you're identifying a public problem, but you're coming up with a private sector solution, at least to one piece of the puzzle, right? And you decided to go in the direction of providing service to private fleet by offering data to their passengers with a view later on to integrate with the public network data. How did you arrive at that point as a solution to the mobility problem? Walk me through that thinking process. So we have a problem of a data gap, right? Data is not flowing through the system. Buses, trains, all the data is actually not coming together. So the question is, that can we build the tools to make this data come alive and allow this data to flow in an ecosystem? So you think of any system like health or education, right? Essentially, you know, your health information should be such that Whichever hospital you go to, you should be able to get decent health treatment. They have information. Same thing with education. As you move from you know different classes to different institutions, that information needs to flow. But in mobility, that information has to flow real time. Essentially, we believe that we are at a point where you can actually build that technology layer 
and make it happen. However, if you build it just for your company, for just your enterprise, for my buses or Prasanna does it for their buses, their trains, you're not building it with the transport ecosystem in mind. So in large cities, you do have a metropolitan transport agency like Transport for London. And so we tried it with SPAD, you know, the, the, the Suranjaya Pemutan Darat, right? Uh, but they're not able to get there. They're not able to actually make things happen. And we see that government procurement, especially when it comes to data and technology, they're used to buying commodities like buying laptops or, or buying a software. But they're not used to actually thinking about a problem and building at scale. So, for example, the government outsourced a lot of home ministries affairs to MyEG. So you can get your maid and things like that. And MyEG was able to build a more effective system. So very often we feel that the private sector can actually look at the problem broader and bring in people into a data marketplace more effectively than, say, a particular government agency. Uh, government agencies are good at creating regulations and licensing. They're not good at actually thinking of it something as a larger ecosystem. And I think that data players, technology players are better at doing something like this. Now I understand Asia Mobility's mission is, it says build products and promote policy, right? So where your thinking process is, is that you feel that you want the product which is collecting the data part to affect the policy part, is it? A little bit of both. There are some policies that need to change, but the policies can't change until they see the logic of the data flow, right? Yeah. So for example, a policy could be that every bus has to carry a telematic device and every bus needs to move that, that data you know, into a data cloud, right? If you create a policy, then it may be difficult for bus uh, companies to, to adhere to it. So we also need to have the, the solution to it. So when you have a policy or regulation which creates a certain demand, you need the supply, the solution to the problem to be very effective. But it's not just about buses and trains. What about car parking? What about valet? What about tolls, right? What about driving access to a gated and guarded community, your high rises? You know, these are all mobility questions. Mobility is, is very large. What about if someone wants to introduce an e-scooter or, or share rides? How do you make sure you know, Grab is, is compatible with everything else? So policy creates a level playing field where everybody can play. It's just like using a phone, right? The fact that you know, if you're using, say, Maxis or DG, we can call a cellcom line, right? There is this interoperability which needs to happen. So regulation creates that. They look at it as an ecosystem rather than individual provision. So in communications, we've been able to do that effectively, but we have failed to do that in terms of mobility. That's why we, we have to build both the product, the technology, which are the solution sites, as well as to get the right policies in place to make all the players play on the same level playing field. How do you see Asia Mobility's role in that kind of coordinating this fragmented transportation system that you've just described? How do you think Asia Mobility can play a role in developing that whole ecosystem? Well, we can play a catalyzing role, right? We can advise in terms of policy, how things would work, how would we bring things together. We can provide product solutions, technologies to make things happen. We can work with the private sector, you know, transport players. We can provide mobility planning. So it's like, you know, in first mile, last mile, these solutions tend to work best. If you want to work in a, in a crowded city, these are types of solutions you want to best. If an e-scooter company wants to come in, this is where e-scooter companies can play well. This is how school buses should be operated, or this is how bus kilang can work. By actually having in-depth knowledge of transport in the field, we can help things work. And what we also do is taking a data approach. So we also have tools where we can show and map people's journeys generally. So we can say, look, 
the demand from A to B is this much. And the more important part about this data layer is that once you create a, a mobility data ecosystem or a platform, then anybody can start launching a service on the platform. So for example, let's say we take Penang, your hometown, right? And you know, a certain amount of buses running around. You could then launch your own community shuttle around your neighborhood to get people around and get to the, the bus stop. Now today is that people have to find out that such thing as a community shuttle. But once you integrate the platform, people say, if I want to go here, oh, I, I can see there's a community shuttle that, that's on offer. So that's why platforms really work because it allows for entrepreneurs to join the platform and offer a service. And for us, especially in Southeast Asia, where it's very fragmented, there's so many authorities, there's local authorities, there's, it's very hard to take a top-down approach and say, look, all of us play together. It's much better to take a platform approach by saying, I'm going to create the platform and anybody who wants to be a mobility entrepreneur can play on this platform. For example, you can launch um, a taxi service or grab service, for example, just for women or just for children. Or these are people who are mobility challenged, right? So generally now, you know, if you're going somewhere like KL Central, you might take the train. But if it means you walking, say, one or two kilometers, you may be hesitant. You may say, well, if you can afford it, I'll just take a grab. So how can we, for example, extend that radius? How can we say, look, why don't you take a train? And, you know, within the first three kilometers, there's a really good service that you can use to get you from train station to, to three kilometers away. So these are all mechanisms that, that we can use. And that's what we are advocating. Okay. And you have released uh, an app, right, called Trek to provide that kind of multimodal, which is the integration of different information together, kind of travel planner. And where, where do you go from there? Because that, that feels like it's one layer of integration, but then there are other layers of integration from there, right? Including payments or including like even single pass kind of integration. So where do, where do you go from there from the point where you release the app to these different layers of integration, is that even something that you're going for? Yeah, the track was kind of like a demonstration app. We are moving very strongly to be more of a B2B player. For example, uh, Prasanna may want to run their own app or, or you know, now Asia is getting into the super app business or Touch and Go may want to have a Jenny app. We're not saying that there has to be only one app. There can be many apps. Like if you go to other countries, you could use Google Maps or you could use City Mapper. You know, there are many different apps, right? Our app is one of the apps and we want to demonstrate how it can be used. But at our core business, that we provide the technology to, for any app to do, to do this. So we essentially, we create the data, we suck in the data, and we, we have very powerful algorithms to help you plan how to get A to B. And getting to A to B is actually not a simple answer, right? Know. Do you walk to a station? Do you take a bus to the station? Is it better to take a bus or to take a, a train and a bus, right? Uh, what happens when you get to the other end? So these are actually quite complex questions that we have to answer. We live in a situation where we, we can only anticipate what the journey is like and then plan a route. So we, we go by by population densities. These are the where people are, are living and we think they all work in the city. So we have a route from Subang Jaya or Klang to Kuala Lumpur, right? But there will not be, you know, something from say Klang to Puchong. Everything is very radial into the city, but that's really not the case anymore. We don't all go to Kuala Lumpur to work, right? So we still plan our transport systems that way, but we can actually use modern technology to plan it in a different way. But because it's available on the platform, I can find out about it when I want to go to A to B. So that's actually the magic of a mobility platform. If we look at other countries or other cities that you think of when we say that they have gotten mobility right, so to speak, 
I wonder where were they 20 to 30 years ago and how did they get to where they are today? Because I'm curious about what are the lessons that potentially we can learn from the cities that could be feasible for cities in Malaysia or even in Southeast Asia. Yeah, I think a lot of the cities who have got it done well, the backbone are, are train systems. So they create a strong train system and then they have a very strong bus systems. And very early on, they've integrated the data between the train, the buses. And for first mile, last mile, either it's a taxi or in other countries like your tuk-tuks and small informal vehicles. So for example, you go to Bangkok, you get down from the train station, you can catch one of those uh, tuk-tuks or jeepneys or whatever and take you, you know, uh, one kilometer in, into the side lanes, etc. So essentially, you've got the, the trunk transport and then you've got an efficient last mile type of transport system. And this is what cities have done well in the past. Because of various issues, many of our Southeast Asian issues, the cities were very late to build trains when we didn't invest in a train transport system. Many of us went into toll highways and car-driven transport systems, and many of us have not been able to create effective bus. So buses tend to work less efficiently. Once you build highways and you have a very high car densities, then your buses fail because of traffic jams. So buses and trains work well only if you keep the private vehicle traffic down. So you do need more and more people to shift to public transport instead of allowing you know, some sort of balance. You, you can't have it 50-50. You have to actually make it like 70-80% public transport and about 20% private. It's like Singapore. Uh, you know, not that many people would have a car. I might have a car. I may not drive it so much. I might not drive it for my daily commute. I might drive it on a weekend or something else. The fact is that for many reasons, you would not need a car if you were, say, in Singapore. So I think a lot of cities got it right early and we're kind of late to the game, but it's not too late. And uh, you look at a lot of Southeast Asian cities, you look at South Asian cities, you look at African cities, very common problems, which we can move in the direction of, of a mobility platform and make mobility and entrepreneurship work. And you felt that Bangkok has gotten it right? Is that the city that you look to as an example? Well, Bangkok is improving. I mean, if you remember Bangkok, you know, 10, 15 years ago, a drive in, in the city would take you two, three hours to get from one spot to one spot. And they've been re- investing very aggressively into trains and other modes of transport. I don't think they're quite there yet. At least in the first mile, last mile, they do have a solution in form of these, you know, little transport vehicles that move around. But there's still a long way to go. So even in, in places like Bangkok, beyond the train system, the buses, I don't think work so well. So they can do their ways of improving that as well. Manila, uh, Jakarta, and not just the capital cities. I mean, the great thing about having a mobility ecosystem, it actually goes down into smaller towns. You can take Kuala Selangor, you can take Kuantan, much more smaller towns, which can run without the trains, but just buses. The great thing about having um, data about buses is that you actually shorten your wait times a lot. You know what time the bus is coming, and you can wait there five minutes before the bus comes, rather than waiting there for one hour and you know wondering when the bus is going to arrive. So that allows you to have less frequent buses. You know, So less frequent buses does not mean uh, longer wait times because you actually know what time the bus is coming. So when my kids were UK, they would leave the house on the dot and they would say, yes, the bus is arriving in two minutes and, and they could be there you know, 30 seconds before the bus arrives. Yeah, exactly. I remember when I was living in Singapore as well, I could see my app and I it, it tells me exactly when the bus is coming, right? And not just that, it tells me when the next bus and the next next bus is coming. So I'm like, okay, do I want to rush and finish my breakfast or do I take my time and go for the next one? So it's a, quite a luxury. Absolutely, absolutely. It just makes you more relaxed. You don't have to rush. You're not, you're not like tense. Oh my God, I'm going to miss my bus. 
I don't know what time the next bus is arriving. It really allows you and allows you to bunch up so you can have more buses during peak hour, less buses at you know other times of the day. So it actually induces a lot of efficiency around transport. And talking about having a train as like the core of a transportation system, I noticed that in different cities, the rail companies don't just focus on transportation as uh, that's their core business but then in terms of revenue stream they also diversify into making retail spaces like say in hong kong or even in singapore and if we look at like the dominant mobility apps in the region like grab and gojack they seem to be diversifying as well from ride hailing exclusively to more of a super app how do you think that kind of a trend affects Asian mobility? I, I think that most transport providers should not just look at fair revenue. They can look at advertising, data, retail opportunities, etc. And they have to look at it holistically in order for it, for it to be profitable, definitely. I think that if you're doing things like e-hailing, then you're essentially moving things around, right? You're moving people, you're moving products, you're moving food. It's one and the same, right? So you start looking at, at how can you move things around. You kind of like, a logistics company, right? Asia Mobility is a data company. We move data around. We create data. We help move data around so everybody can share in that data. So for logistics, for example, we have telematics solutions, but we, we can link that to, say, a cold chain so you can monitor whether a product has, you know, temperature has been maintained. We can link that to security features that can block up cargo, etc. So we essentially say, look, okay, what data needs to come alive so that this thing can be tracked? in a more efficient manner and when something can be tracked it can be handed off so one party can do a main leg can then hand over to a last mile solution to do the final delivery and the consumer can be alerted that the product has arrived right there's a lot of automation that can be done over logistics etc so we see ourselves as a data company and expanding data solutions linked to mobility how do we track things that go over international boundaries so that you know our data connectivity uh, can't be relying on just local telcos. It has to be a roaming solution. We can track that. So there's a lot of very interesting data solutions that come alive as mobility gets more and more complex. I want to kind of switch gear a little bit. You are very well known for being one of the co-founders of Malaysia Kini. And now you're also uh, the co-founder of Asia Mobility. How do you juggle both running Malaysia Kini and Asia Mobility? Well, Asia Mobility, you know, it's being run by Ram, my partner in Asia Mobility. He's a CEO. We started off as co-founders, but he's doing a really great job as CEO. I do find that it's good to have a good partner, uh, and I believe in complementary leadership. So I do spend a bit of time, quite a bit of time in Asia Mobility, although most of my time is spent on Malaysia Kini. And given that reporting in Malaysia Kini is, uh, well, not viewed very favorably by the current government in power. Do you see that as perhaps holding back the work in Asia mobility in areas that perhaps may involve regulation or collaboration with policymakers? Um, well, of course, I hope it doesn't. But I, I really feel that the world is is changing very fast. If you think back when Malaysia Kini was first launched, you know, we were seen as outsiders, upstarts. Today, Malaysia Kini is often seen as mainstream. Going to internet for news was seen to be something strange. Today, everybody's online for news, right? So, you know, to a lot of people, Malaysia Kini is, is the norm. It's no longer the, the exception. And if you look at, at things like Black Lives Matters, you look at things like Me Too, more and more corporations, governments uh, have had to take a much more holistic look, look at issues, right? Look at what's happening in top gloves on, on human rights, on labor issues, etc. 
So I I do believe that some people might say, oh, we, they may look at us and say, oh my God, this is too political or something. But at the end of the day, we, we know we need to get there fast. And Asian Mobility is a great partner to, to do that. We've got the know-how. And the great thing about Asian Mobility is that we're building all our technology in Malaysia. It's all by Malaysian developers, our hardware, our IoT, our, our technology solutions. We really invest in, in Malaysians. And we really hope that this creates a very conducive partnership with the government. Because, you know, the governments want the same thing. They want, they want success stories in terms of mobility. And both Ram and I bring a lot of credibility to the table. We're not corrupt. We're not going to bribe anybody to get jobs. We are going to be straight shooters. So we believe that, you know, the government saying, who can I bank on to really deliver a solution to mobility? They will see Asia Mobility as that solution. I mean, if you look at, for example, uh, Tony Fernandez when he started Air Asia, right? Oh, a bit of an upstart trying to take on Mars. But because he was an upstart, he was so determined to succeed. And he delivered a great airline solution. You know, became one of the biggest airlines in, in Asia, right? So we see the same way. We see that sometimes the mavericks, the, the tough people are the ones who really de- deliver the best solutions. I see. So you're hoping for the product and the services to speak for themselves, notwithstanding that you are operating in an industry where there are quite a lot of, I wouldn't say dependence, but quite a lot of interaction with policymakers in that sense. Yeah, I, I think that we are very open to those discussions with policymakers. We've already had quite a few of them you know, discussing these matters. And I believe that the government does want you know, the best solution. And governments do want to show that they're doing the right thing and making those things work. So conversely, I think the other side of your Malaysia Kini Asia mobility work is that do you see there being a potential for conflict of interest between these two roles you have and how do you manage that? Well in Malaysia Kini, I know I don't handle editorial. I run the business, technology, advertising, etc. And editorial is free to report however they would like to. So I don't see that being an issue. Mm. You know, I always ask my guests who come on the show if you're not X, what do you think you would have been? And I felt that when I was looking through your career, it feels like you have done quite a few different things. So instead, I want to shift a little bit and I want to ask you, what is the best career advice you've had? What is it you can find out about my career online? I'm wondering now. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, well, obviously, you know, you, you're, you are a journalist and then you started Malaysia Kinney. Then you pivoted to do Asian mobility. But even when you were in Malaysia Kinney, I noticed that you already have quite a bit of interest in trying out stuff revolving around data. Like in Kinney Labs, you were doing stuff on kind of geolocation And so I thought you seem to already have quite a bit of interest in in going down that path. Also, uh, you're a TED fellow and then also teaching in in journalism school and so on. So it's kind of like quite a few different layers to your career. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I mean, Kini News Lab is done by our our data team. So I'm not Mm. not so involved in it, but I'm very supportive of it. I think they've done a great Mm -hmm. job in, in data journalism. And I think data is really interesting in that way. Although I did spend a stint in the sun as a journalist, when I when when we began Magic Kini, Stephen handled editorial, and I kind of stepped away from the day-to-day journalism. I think there are two common threads. One was my earliest time was more of kind of like a social activist. I spent a lot of time on human rights, environmental issues, development issues. I went to the Earth Summit in 1992, talking about the environment, etc. So I was very involved in, in kind of democracy work in that sense. And journalism was part of that, justice, etc. And then I shifted in my role in Magic Kini, I became very much a kind of an entrepreneur, a technology entrepreneur. So I learned a lot about technology issues and looking at how you can build. So 
from you know major major kidney and asian mobility i think both in the commonality in the board is that we want to solve a public problem right in major kidney is, is to provide independent news in asian mobility is to provide efficient mobility i do gravitate nowadays towards looking at how we can solve problems at scale so besides the mobility and news i'm also very interested in housing as a major problem so these are my areas that like like how can we use our business skills and entrepreneur skills to solve kind of social problems at scale that's what i find interesting that's really cool and there's obviously a lot of intersection between housing and mobility as well i'm curious to get your thoughts about the recent suggestion to kind of stretch out the loan period for housing into two generations how how do you see that issue actually yeah i i think we we're, we're comparing housing with house ownership and i think that's probably not the way to go i think there are those who can become house owners and there are those who can even become investors and own two or three properties and create rents but by and large many families may not be able to afford to buy a house and if they are pushed to buy a house they often lose it they go bankrupt the house gets auctioned off they can't maintain the house increasingly now with you know with, with gig workers there's no solid paycheck they may not be able to get a loan from the bank so we need to think about the housing problem solution in a broader perspective beyond house ownership so what has happened more recently is the house and house prices goes up uh, banks have now started introducing partial uh, house ownership so you own x percentage of the house and then you do something else like the edge and maybank and things like that or you try to you know you pay a rent and then you can buy the house in the future but it's still really pushing towards purchasing the house because that then gets you into a loan and then you that's how banks make money so both developers and the finance industry coexist and push towards house ownership but if you look at housing as a social purpose then you need to look at it differently by and large it does not serve the bottom 30 40% of the population our current model and that's 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 where i'm interested in okay so what is your model for serving that bottom 30 to 40% i think increasingly we have to go towards social housing so for example now there's a lot of discussion about universal basic income ubi as a form of egalitarian addressing inequality so if you look at many countries the higher proportion of income is spent on housing the higher the inequality is so when you spend a lot of money on basic housing you don't have enough extra income to spend on other things or you end up spending um less on housing but it's a very bad housing it's too cramped you know it's not appropriate and if you look at the um studies by Kasana I think you interviewed Christopher Chong right I saw I Christopher saw Christopher Chong yes yes yeah I think he's also done a lot of work on on housing so for example in social mobility you see that we become very stratified it means we're born to uh, uh working class families your opportunity for social mobility is actually very very low so in order to break that cycle we have to provide housing in a form of like a, kind of like a universal basic income housing solution which is not tied towards housing ownership so it's not a you no know, rent to buy etc it's like this is housing and and you get housing and that then leads to better social outcomes in terms of education in terms of health in terms of less crime you get a lot other uh, better social outcomes by investing and providing housing as a solution and how will that be different from what we have currently with the ppr uh, schemes the the problem with the ppr schemes is that one they they badly built okay. two they badly managed they badly maintained ppr flats has been kind of like it was first created as a slang on kl developer we wanted to get rid of squatters so we created all these huge high rises of flats and push all the squatters into these flats right in order to free up land for you know shopping malls and everything else So it was never a conscious effort to provide housing to the poor it was 
let's free up land for everything else. I mean, if you take a typical area, like if you think of a new area, like say Ara, Ara Damansara, beautiful development. And then I don't know where, you, if you know, the PPR flats are tucked into one corner and horrendous conditions for the PPR flats. And our PPR flats, it's not built in a sense that, look, what's going to happen to the people living there? That also creates a lot of racial issues, you know, because you've got one entity living in the developed areas and a different ethnicity living in the PPR flats. We need to move away from that sort of model. So maybe better type of flats, integrating social housing into middle-class flats. You don't need to create ghettos. It's actually valuable to integrate because they can also provide local services within that community, right? Babysitting services, daycare services, laundry services, There's a lot of inter-services that can develop when different communities live together. You break stereotypes, you have more intermingling. People go to a common school. There's a lot of social benefits rather than what we have now where the middle class live in certain areas and then you push everybody into PPR flats. Housing development is really for those who are, can afford it. And what we're doing with two-generation loans, it's like, what are we doing with cars? We hike up the prices of cars and then people take a nine-year loan for a car, right? So we hike up prices of housing and then people take you know, even longer and longer loans for housing. That's not the solution. You're just depriving them from a decent amount of money for their monthly expenditure. So you've done quite a few different things in different areas. Who would you say influenced you in any one of these different um, areas that you've worked at? I think it's hard to talk about people who have influenced me in a particular area, like say news or mobility. But I mean, whether it's people like Gandhi or Nelson Mandela, I read a lot on, on Ivan Illich, uh, Wolfgang Sachs, people who deconstruct development, deconstruct globalization, look at how society is structured those sort of global analysis. I did a bit of international political economy for my master's. So I think these subject areas have influenced me. I believe to a large extent, we live in a pretty much a satisfied society. We have kind of a consuming middle class. We've got enough money to consume. The working class, they, they provide labor. They construct the houses we live in. They construct the loads. They construct all the facilities that we enjoy, but they get very little back. So they are like a serving class. They serve the needs of the middle class. And of course, the elite with enough accumulated capital, they can both consume luxury products and they can enjoy with the middle class the benefits of our modern cities and our modern structures. But there's very little that the working class or the serving class can enjoy. So how we redress that is a major issue that we face. And if we continue on our current path, we, we are very much driven by profits and extraction economics. Whether it's a climate crisis or any other issues, we don't have a political and economic solution that drives us towards fulfilling those problems of inequality, of the climate crisis. And instead, most of it goes towards profit accumulation. What do you wish every child in the country know about what you do? <laughs> it's a tough one. <laughs> I think the idea is that those of us who, who have benefited from you know, a good education and certain privileges, we should really put our minds into solving the, the big problems rather than focus on what, what's my salary at the end of the day or what kind of career am I going to have. So I think it would be great if we really try to focus on some of these bigger issues. And I think the world needs that. Okay. And what are three books that you would recommend to the audience to know more about the topic we've discussed? Or it can be just the books that you love. Uh, very tricky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit stuck on that one. There's a book called The Development Dictionary that, that influenced me. It's like a reader on, on development. It's pretty old now, but it's not an easy read. 
but it does go through a lot of issues, but it's quite detailed. I liked uh, Ivan Ilyich, he wrote Deschooling Society and Tools of uh, Conviviality, which really examine how we create the paradigms in modern society and how we understand technology. How do we actually push in technology to serve the interests of profit or larger solutions? So I think that, that what we have today is that there's a strong nexus between politics, technology, and profit. And this alliance, political interests, economic interests, and technology interests, you put together drives in one direction and it doesn't actually drive towards the very fundamental issues that we face in society so you know how do we move and create a different alliance uh, among social actors to create different outcomes i think that's the major challenge that, that we face what should i ask that i have not asked <laughs> I, I i try to talk about malaysia at 100 which is going to be in 2063 which is you know not far away it's like 42 years away or Madeka 100 you know in 2057 which is some 36 years away, right? So these are milestones which are not too far away. There are going to be many young people who are in their 30s, 40s today who will be there at this, this junction. So my thing is that if you're in 20s and 30s, what do you want a country to be at 100, right? We always say we're a young country. We're not getting young anymore. We're getting older. <laughs> past middle age. Yeah, we're past middle age. So I have got great faith in the younger generation. They need to come together and they need to push harder. I feel that, you know, they're pushing, but we, we need to push even harder so that the country that we are at 100 is the country that we want to be. I would urge younger people to try to move out of the day-to-day existence and start really driving hard towards these solutions, which they can. They're very smart. They've got access to technology. They can really, really push their own parents to not only be a good parent, but to be a good citizen. It's getting the parents to do the right thing, getting communities around them to do the right thing getting our politicians to do the right thing. And they will then be able to create this country, this Malaysia at 100 or Merdeka at 100. And, uh, you know, that's what my message to young people would be. That's very inspiring. And as someone who works with young people, I do find them very inspiring as well. A lot of what they're capable of doing. Yeah. With that, thank you so much, Prem. Thank you for spending the time and explaining the work that you do. That's our show this week. Work in Progress is brought to you by Weekend Academy. If you would like to support our show and our work, go to weekendacademy.org slash podcast. Today's show is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Gap Mindy. Music is by Caffeine Creek Band. We're taking a bit of a break because Weekend Academy is working on a big project, which in the spirit of this episode, is a market-based solution to another intractable problem, education. I can't wait to share it more with you. In the meantime, if you love the show or if you found it helpful, subscribe, share it with your friend. I'm so appreciative of you listening in. We'll be back in one month's time.